Did I miss the joke? <laughs> yeah, you don't We discussed how that although the Benini has achieved a level of perfection when it comes to their conduct, whether it's in action or in speech or thought, they've actually made no progress whatsoever in tackling the underlying issue that the animal soul is completely um, resistant to God. On fundamentally, right? That it approaches everything from, from a place of klipa. Um, and that it has in no way been transformed and not even really been subjugated, even though it's true that its manifestation might ultimately be a little bit more refined. Okay. So now we're going to introduce a, a, a new level of Bainani. Even one whose whole aspiration is in God's Torah. Which he studies day and night for its own sake. This is still no proof whatsoever that the evil has been dislodged from its place. But it may still be that its essence and substance are in their full strength and might in its abode in the left part, except that its garments, thoughts, and action of the animal soul are not invested in the brain, mouth, or other parts of the body because God has given the mind supremacy and dominion over the heart. Okay. So you could have a person whose entire aspiration in life is Hashem's Torah. Now, one of the key elements here is that the idea is that the person's aspiration is not Torah, but Hashem's, Hashem's Torah. As he goes on to say very clearly that the person is studying Torah day and night for its own sake. Meaning that their study of Torah is motivated solely by desire to get closer to Hashem, not because of the intellectual um, engagement, and certainly not to use the Torah as a means to get something such as honor or power or something like that. So you could have a person who genuinely is involved in Torah all the time for all the right reasons, and yet this is not an indication that their animal soul has anyway been dislodged in any way been weakened. Now, why is that? How could that be? And so notice here, he comes back to the idea of the mind ruling the heart. Right? That because the way Hashem has created a person is the mind rules over the heart, therefore the divine soul and intellect rules over the entire small city, all parts of the body, making them a garment vehicle for the three garments, where enclosed to wit the thoughts, speech, and action of 613 minutes of the Torah. Now,
this kind of this kind of this 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 state of affairs, right? Where the person only feels one kind of desire, the desires of their godly soul. And so such a person would be, would be um, inclined to think, because they're only feeling the desires of the godly soul, that, in fact, the animal soul has been subjugated or maybe transformed. Okay. Um, now, There is a state, uh, we do this like a little bit out of order. There is a state which is not subjugation, certainly not being transformed, but it's also that the animal soul is not active. Okay? So up to now we've kind of engaged in, in we've spoken about how with a tzaddik the animal soul is, can be, is genuinely subjugated by the godly soul or in the case of a complete tzaddik is transformed. And we spoke about how the benini, that the animal soul is being curtailed. But if a person's whole aspiration in life is to get close to Hashem through Torah mitzvahs, it's hard to think of the animal soul as being curtailed, right? Because the idea that it's being curtailed kind of implies that there's, there's some kind of tension, right? I mean, if you think, if you, if you think of, a, 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 of you know, a, an animal, right? You put it in the cage. The reason you put it in the cage is because the animal would wander off without the cage, right? And... Well, the animal might adjust to the cage, right? We all understand that the animal, there's this kind of testing limit. You see this also with children, right? Children um, test boundaries, right? I think everybody actually really tests boundaries. So if the animal's soul is, is, is being curtailed, then it's going to be testing those boundaries. It's going to be trying to find different ways to get, get a hold, to express itself. And even though the person has the clarity to... to ensure that that doesn't actually find any manifestation in their conduct, their thoughts, speech, and action, there's still going to be some degree of tension. There's some degree of back and forth. Like we described previously that after davening, the baini feels the desire but doesn't really consider them as legitimate. Right? So you still have that notion of experiencing the conflict. It's hard to understand how you could have a person whose whole aspiration is only to connect to Hashem through Torah mitzvahs and yet at the same time to say the animal soul has in no way been subjugated. There should be some degree of, of tension, of internal conflict going on, even if it's very lopsided. Um, so, in order to understand that, um, the Alter Rebbe goes off and goes back to discuss the state of the animal soul in prayer. When a person is in the state of prayer, in that, 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 that deep kind of complaint, um, contemplation. What's going on with the animal soul then? Because also there we said, if you recall, that the animals, that the, that the godly soul is total sovereignty. And yet the person was not a tzaddik, right? The, God, the animal soul has not been transformed. It's not even been subjugated. So he's going to go back and try and understand what's really happening in the time of prayer with the godly soul, with the animal soul, what's the interaction at that point? And then we're going to use that to extrapolate to this person whose whole soul, soul aspiration in life is to get close to Shem through Torah mitzvahs, why they're still considered a bainani and not a tzaddik. 
So again, our regular understanding of the life of, of a Baini is the Baini who has prayed has this kind of clarity that gives the, almost as an inoculation against um, allowing the desires of the animal soul to be considered in any legitimate way. And then you have the Baini who hasn't prayed, who at least has, maintains a sense of kind of balance of power and um, earns Hashem's assistance to... to calm down on the right side of that internal struggle. But someone who's, who who's experiences only a desire, only an aspiration, only a yearning to get close to Hashem's determined, says, where's the, where, in what way do we see that the animal soul is not subjugated? In what way do we see the animal soul has not been refined, not been elevated, not been transformed? And so we're going to go back and again visit what is happening to the Bainini in the time of prayer. However, in its essence, the substance and of the divine soul in the Baini has no preponderance over the animal soul, except at the time when his love is occasion is manifest itself in his heart on propitious occasions such as prayer and the like. So first off, we have a rule. When is the when is it, when do we say that a Baini only experiences things from the godly soul during a time of prayer? And what's happening during the time of prayer? Even then, it is limited to preponderance and dominion alone. Now, if you look in the Hebrew. Um, one second. He uses the words shlita and memshala, which our translator has preponderance and dominion. Okay. As it says, one nation shall prevail over the other. That is, when one rises, the other falls, vice versa. Okay, there's an idea of control and governance. There's an idea of real sovereignty. We spoke of this before. If, even though it will feel to the Benini like the godly soul has total sovereignty over them, it's not really the case. What's really happening is one soul is having dominion and control at the expense of the other. Okay. So... Um, Let's use, let's use the following analogy, okay? Um, it would be nicer if this was all theoretical, but unfortunately, um, it's not always so theoretical. When one country tries to take over another country, um, there are two kind, there are two, there are two basic formulations of how the government of the invaded country can resist. Okay. One way of resisting is they stay in place and resist. Okay. Right, so the other way is that the government goes into exile and resists from outside the country. Okay. Um, which one is more effective and why? If the leaders leave the country and go to a safe ally and from there try to direct the resistance versus the leaders stay, which is going to be more effective and why? Go, go to explain. Versus...
Right. So you know, if you want to if you want to preserve the the state of conflict, right, then it, having the leaders present is probably going to do that much more effectively. Right? If you want to preserve the state of conflict, having the leaders present is going to do that more effectively. You do run a risk, though, that you could get annihilated, right? Whereas if you have an opposition or an exile, right, then you have this claim that fundamentally the other government is illegitimate, right? So there's this kind of question, right, of kind of a more theoretical legal argument, right, the, the integrity and continuity of the state as, a, as an entity versus the reality of resisting invasion and occupation. Does that make sense? But those are, those are two very different things. Yeah. Um, is it possible for a country to conquer another country, take over, occupy them, govern them, and the other country the country who's being occupied and, and to still feel that in principle these are not their true rulers because they have true rulers but their true rulers are again their exiles right that could still be the case right um in that sense you would say that the the other country has not truly won over the loyalty they're not truly um setting aside the legalities of it, but they're not but, not, but they're not truly viewed by the other people as as really sovereign on the other hand, right, um, you could have a situation where a country gets conquered by another country and they do actually change the way the people think of themselves, right? And they, they create a kind of a, a new identity. It's very different. Okay, so let's think of these three different states. You have a state where there's active resistance to an invader and occupier you have where there's an in-principle um, opposition, but in practice, right, the country's been occupied and, 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 the, and the, the, quote, legitimate government is, 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 you know, a government in exile. And then you have the state where, like, the people have already, and, and the people, they'll still have maintained a kind of allegiance to that, um, but they're not, you know, they're being occupied. And then you have a situation where the, the, consciousness of the public has been altered and changed so they start to see themselves as subjects or citizens of the, of, of the new country with the people who have conquered them. Okay. And you go through history and you can kind of broadly speaking make different examples of these kinds of things when you think of countries invading other countries. Okay. Now, which one would be analogous to the Bainani and which one would be analogous to the tzaddik? And that's a trick question because you have three options. And I asked you which one is analogous to the main, which one's analogous to the tzaddik, right? So again, you have where a country is being invaded and it's being occupied, but the government is actively resisting and fighting back, right? You have where a country has been invaded and occupied and the the, the official state apparatus has fled into exile and the people are still loyal to that in principle but have been occupied. And then you have where a country has conquered another country and changed the sense of national identity to become 
you know, relatively speaking, loyal subjects. Which one is the tzaddik? Let's start with that. The last one's the tzaddik. Yeah. Right. Now, within that, we could subdivide it, right? Loyal subjects, we can talk about where there's been a true transformation, right? And then there can be where the transformation is really just a transformation in appearance, but it's actually an act of subjugation, right? If you want to think about historical examples of that, think of the difference between um, what happened with the British and the, in the Indian peoples, where the Indian peoples were colonized by the British, but were fought very, well, very much for the British Empire, but there was still a sense that fundamentally they're being occupied. So there, were, there was loyalty on the one hand, but a sense that we're still subjugated by this other entity on the other hand. Right? So that's much more like the way the incomplete tzaddik dominates the animal soul. Whereas if you think about the way that um, after World War II, the allies took the nations that they, the West, the, the democratic allies took the nations like say Germany, um, Italy and um, Japan and remade them so that these are countries even pursuing their own self-interest are more or less in alliance with their former conquerors. Right, so you see that those are, but there is either way, right? There isn't there. there there's broadly speaking, I'm over, oversimplifying, right? Real life, real history, it's much more complex. What would be an example of the Benini, though, right? So the Benini is where there isn't that change in allegiance, that change in perspective. So what would be the example of the Benini? The godly soul comes along and invades the territory of the animal soul, and which? How does the animal soul look? Okay. In prayer, the animal soul would be exiled because the, uh, like the government, the people are acting in accordance with the godly soul, but their true allegiance is to the animal soul, but it's an exile, so they're not really right. Right. thinking about it or engaging with it. And the Benoni without prayer um, is there's a struggle, but the invading government is which is the godly soul in this case, is holding out. Right. And then we could say within that, we could subdivide that, whether it's like a real tenuous situation, the baby who hasn't prayed, or, or it's like an iron grip and they're in total control. Okay. But yeah, that, that's exactly the point. In other words, that this idea that one nation prevail over the other, this is describing the state of prayer. And so when the godly soul really takes control, the animal soul retreats. But that retreat is not, in, is not in any way a surrender. Right? And what happens when the prayer is over? This is going to be very key to understanding the continuation of the chapter. What happens when the state of prayer is over? The animal soul goes back to resisting. The back to resisting, right? The, 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 you know, the leaders come back and lead the resistance, and, you know, and now you have a real conflict. And again, that, that itself can be divided into whether, whether it's a tenuous situation because, there's a, because the effect of the prayer is worn off completely, like the Bain had at the beginning of this chapter, or the effect of this prayer is still present. And so it's even though there's, even though there's the, the, the conflicting desires are experienced, when it comes to behavior, it's very clear to this person what they're going to be doing. Thus, when the divine soul gains strength and ascendancy over the animal soul on the source of Gvurais, which is Bina, through pondering on the greatness of God, the ain't so blessed is he, thereby generating intense and flaming love of Hashem in the right part of his heart. Then the sitrach, or in the left part, is subdued, but is not entirely abolished in the case of the Baini. It is only in the case of a tzaddik, 
concerning whom it says, my heart is void within me, the latter despises and hates evil with a consummate hatred and contempt or without quite such a complete hatred as explained above. So what, what, what is it that is happening to get the animal soul to be subdued is he calls these, these um, the ascendancy over the animal soul, it says comes from the gvura of the animal soul, of the godly soul, which is in Bina, whatever that means. That how it comes to contemplating the greatness of Hashem, generating a kind of intense love. All that we need to explain. And when that is happening, what happens to the animal soul? Even in the Bain, it's subdued. But that's, it's being subdued is not a real surrender. It's not a real acknowledgement of defeat. Rather, it's the kind of the way that, you know, the, the leaders flee into exile. The people are waiting for their return. Okay? The Alter gives the example. We'll just keep bringing, I'm coming to come back to the, uh, the Gavuras. But in the Bain, is by way of an example similar to a sleeping man. Who can awaken from his sleep? So to the even the Baini is dormant as it were in the left part of the heart during the recital of Shema and the prayer, which his heart is aglow with the love of Hashem, but later it can wake up again. Okay. So we have this state where the animal soul is not transformed, it's not subjugated, it's not resisting the godly soul either. What is it doing? It's sleeping, it's dormant, it's biding its time. In other words, that the overwhelmingness of the godly soul's power, its intensity, its gurus, which we're going to talk about, have gotten the animal soul to lie low, right? The leaders to realize that, like, staying here, you're going to die, flee, and then you can you know, hope to, like, maintain your jizz and you come back, right? It goes to sleep. So, effectively, it feels like what has happened. The animal soul has been subjugated. But in fact, is that what has happened? No. Okay. So now we need to understand, like, like, what is, like, why is it work this way? But, 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 but just born to have the kind of the, the, the kind of different states. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a list of them. Should I use a board? Is a board helpful? Make a list, and we'll, we'll draw our lines. Give a, a good marker here. Okay. Transformed.
Okay. These are different states of the animal soul. It could be transformed, subjugated, dormant, contained, contained with help from Hashem, or it could have power. Good? Okay. There's an obvious line here. What's this person? A Russia. A Russia, right? This is a Russia. Now, we can discuss that levels and levels and levels and levels of Russia, but I don't really want to do that. We're unfortunately very familiar with that, right? Okay, right? And, and we spoke about before just that, that that fact that the, God, the animal soul has power is really deep, not because the animal soul is stronger than the godly soul, but because the godly soul has allowed, allowed that defeat to occur. Okay. What, where should I draw my line between the tzaddik and the vainani? No, 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 subjugated and dormant. Subjugated and dormant, right? This is a tzaddik. Now, this is a complete tzaddik, this is an incomplete tzaddik, but those are the, those are the tzaddik. Okay. Over here we have Benin. Okay. Now, when it's contained, but only with the help of Hashem, that's a baby who has not died, right? That was the beginning of chapter 14, right? It was not balanced, right? They haven't, they haven't engaged in this prayer. So, so they genuinely feel conflicted, right? There's the two judges, and they need the assistance of Hashem to help bring the clarity, right? We spoke at the beginning of chapter 13. Right? Then we spoke about the Bainani who has Daven. After Davening, the mind rules the heart. And so even though they are experiencing the, the, the desires and feelings of their animal soul, but those are contained because of the clarity, right? the impression left from the prayer in the mind and the heart. Right? The clarity of reality in the mind, the clarity of heart that I'm a Jew, I have a God, the soul connected to a shepherd in the heart, right? that natural love, that keeps the animal soul contained, right? But it's being contained, that the animal soul is pushing against it, right? It's that you need to contain it. What about during prayer? Did I spell dormant right? Yes. Okay. What about during prayer? Right. So, but it's not really being subjugated. What's happening? It's dormant. It's gone to sleep, right? It's it's left the battlefield to wait for a more opportune time to come back. This is during dawning? Right. Okay. So now let's think about this. Um, so now I want to talk about three types of Bainani. Okay, we'll use a different color marker. Okay. So you have a Bainani. Nice to see you. Okay. So you have a baby. Has not dominant. Okay. What does that baby look like? That look, what does that look like? Right. So. So you don't have to keep rewriting. Baby is not dominant. That looks like number three, right? Who dominates? 
What does that look like? Well, so now we have to have create a cycle, right? Well, first off, while they're davening, it's dormant, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have contained. That's a band who davens. They experience this kind of cycle. When they're davening, the animal soul is dormant, right? And then because of the imprint that's left over, Right? It's contained, right? So, over here we speak about the idea of the mind ruling the heart. Here we speak about the idea of Hashem standing for our assistance, right? Make sense? So, this was the vein that we really discussed in which chapter? Well, this we discussed in chapter 12, right? Daven, right? And here, this vein is not Daven we discussed. Chapter 13. Okay? Now, what we want to do is focus on what's going on in this state. What's happening? What, how's that, what's making the animal soul go dormant? It's going dormant, but it's not actually getting subjugated. subjugated. Okay? And if we understand that, we can get to our third kind of baby. Remember, the person whose whole soul desire in life is to? To serve Hashem, to connect to Hashem, and yet they're not considered to be a? It's not. So I'll come back. Okay, actually, I'll just say this now. What I'll do is we'll, we'll finish the idea simply, and then we'll come back and talk about those ideas, the verse and the bean and what all that is. Okay. For this reason, oh, sorry, sorry. Rabbah considered himself as though he were a Bainani. Now, Rabbah was in fact a Tzavik, but Rabbah considered himself a Bainani. Though his mouth never ceased from study, his desire was in Hashem's Torah, day and night, with a passionate craving yearning of a soul, yearning for Hashem with overwhelming love, such as experienced the reciting of the Shema and Amidah. Hence, he appeared in his own eyes like a Bainani who prays all day long. As our sages said, would it be that a man prayed all day long? The ideal state of a person was if he were in a constant state of prayer. So what is our third kind of Bainani? Right, a Bainani. Now, if he's constantly doubting, which state is an animal soul in? Constantly dormant. It's dormant. And what chapter we learn that in? Chapter? Who constantly doubts? Chapter 13. Chapter 13. So, what do you notice here? Then, chapter 12, we had the kind of like classic middle. And chapter 13, we went all the way down. And then we went all the way up. The highest level of any one who constantly dabbles, and because he constantly dabbles, his animal soul is? It's always dormant. You ever heard of a country called Iran? Mm -hmm. um, what is the legitimate government of Iran? The what? The legitimate government of Iran. Khomeini. What? Well, I don't know if it's Khomeini anymore, but it's a theocracy. You sure? Don't they technically still have a, the faculty? 
there's the, the, the Shah's government still technically claims that they, they, they ran in, in, in the revolution it was in 79, 78, and they still claim they're a legitimate government. And they're just waiting to swoop back in and say, well, wow. yeah, right? They're a government in exile for a very long time. Wait, where are they now? Eventually, the government exile keeps staying in exile. It's just factively, right? You don't even think about it, right? Because it's it's dormant, like you know, other than like hobnobbing with the politicians, like what real world ramifications does it have, right? Okay. Um, so the Bainani who constantly davens, how would their life feel any different from a tzaddik? It wouldn't. It wouldn't. What would the difference be? So let's just try and understand this difference on a very basic level. What would the difference be? We'll go back to the analogy of a dormant being sleeping. If you're sleeping, you can just wake up. Wake up right? Or let's use the example. If there's a government in exile and then you know, the, the, the occupying government collapses and goes away, what does the government in exile do? Tries to come back and take over, right? So... In other words, what would happen if this person were to stop their engagement with the, with the davening, with the contemplation? What if they were to take a day off and relax? What would they discover about themselves? The animal soul is still there. The animal soul is still there. And has their animal soul in any way got any weaker? Right? It's in no way been subjugated, right? They've made zero progress in its subjugation. But that has been made totally relevant. They have no experience of their animal soul because the animal soul has realized that the person is experiencing such an intense connection to Hashem, there's really no point and it lies dormant. Okay, so now, the altar started off in the first chapter of time with the story of Rabbah. That Rabbah, um, he said about himself that he's a Benini. And his disciple, Abai, objected that if he is considered a Benini, then you're setting the standards um, to be impossibly high for what a Benini is, because Rabbah is, in fact, not a Benini, Rabbah is a Tzadik. Now, just to be clear, who was Rabbah? Rabbah was the greatest sage of his generation. He was the, the, the head of the, the Shiva of the Talmudic Academy of Apollonia. Um, but that's just his position. The Gemara says about Rabbah, um, that Rabbi never stopped studying Torah. And his studying of Torah was done with such a devotion to Hashem that the angel of death was unable to cause him to die. In other words, there's an idea that if a person is studying Torah, they cannot die while they're studying Torah. Provided that their study of Torah is for the sake of connecting to Hashem. So there's a f- Not for the sake of saying line, right? So there's an in fact there's an in fact a whole story in the Gemara, a very long story of how Rabbah eventually did die. Um, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. It's, it's in a lot of de- there's a lot of details, but the basic overview of the story is that two things came together at the same time. One is that Rabbah was the, the Rabbah wasn't um, an accusation was made to the to the Persian government that Rabbah had committed some kind of a crime and so Rabbah had to flee for his life 
And at a certain point, so he's at a certain point, so he's on the run fleeing for his life. At the same time, a dispute arises in the heavenly academy, the Shiva Shamaila, where, yeah, what do you think they do in heaven? They study Torah. So there's a dispute. And the dispute was relating regarding the laws of Tsaras. The Tsaras is a mitzvah in the Torah that if a person's skin turns unnaturally white, under certain conditions, they are impure, and lots of halachas come into play. Um, that declaration can only be made by a verified kohen, which we do not have nowadays, so no need to worry. Um, but it is a very complex area of halacha. <clears throat> One of the issues is that, there's, is that in order for there to be tzaras, um, the there needs to be discoloration of the skin as well as discoloration of the hair on the skin, right? People have hair on their skin. Um, and there's a dispute arose regarding um, what happens when it's not clear if the order of the discoloration, the, what happened what to get discolored first, if the order is unclear. Not sure whether this, the skin was discolored first, then the hair, or the hair, then the skin. Because in one order, the person is pure, one order, the person isn't pure. I'm off the top of the head, I forgot which one is which. I think it's the skin. The skin turns white, and then the hair turns white, then the person is impure, but the other way around, the person is pure. But what happens if you don't know the order? Do we assume purity or impurity? So this was a dispute. There were two camps. Who are the two camps? Shall I? No, the two camps. This, this is in heaven. So one camp was, one camp was Kulu de Masifta Durkia. The entire yeshiva in heaven was on one side, and who was on the other side? Hashem. So all, all of the different souls and angels and Shemayim in heaven, they're saying, yep, they said impure. In this situation, we rule impure. And Hashem says, well, I disagree. I think it's pure. That's <laughs> what the Gemara says. Okay. Okay. What? <laughs> seems like a stupid disagreement. Why? The, the votes are not weighted equally. Well, what do you think they did? Oh, they're having this dispute. No, that's silly. We never do that. Then the Gemara never defer. Hashem gave the Torah and that's it. Once he gave the Torah, he is no longer entitled to an opinion above and beyond anybody else. I'm not kidding. The Gemara is very serious about this. What? You don't argue with God. Sure we do. Have you ever opened up the Gemara? Okay, there's another story. I'll go back to the story. There's a story where... Where there was Rabbi, 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 where there was a story of Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Lazar Godel, Rabbi Lazar the Great, and he ruled that a certain oven. Um, the rule is that earthenware utensils are impure; they can become impure. But things that are attached to the ground, like a building, cannot become impure. In the same way, okay. So he ruled that a certain now back in the day they would. The, the, he ruled in a, uh, um, so not attached to it. An earthenware utensil can become impure. In order for earthenware, no, sorry, it's a different thing. An earthenware utensil can become impure. But in order for earthenware utensil to become impure, it has to actually have some sort of container thing that has to be able to contain. And they mailed a certain kind of oven that is made with kind of like rings of earthenware pottery kind of cemented together. And he ruled that this oven cannot be made impure because it's not really a container. And the other, the sages disagreed with him that it can become impure. And they debated. And um, the sages 
the 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 sages they took a vote and the vote rules would follow the majority and so they declared that anybody who relied on Rabbi Lezer's ruling their ovens were impure and any food they made was impure and there was a big debate ensued and um, Rabbi Lezer um, was unable to convince the sages of his opinion but they were unable to convince him of their opinion so Rabbi Lezer gets up and he says if I'm right then let the, let the aqueduct, the water, prove it. And the water started flowing backwards. So uphill. And uh, the sages said, we don't bring proofs from aqueducts. That's not a, it's not a logic argument. So he said, well, if I'm, if, if I'm right, let the carob tree prove it. There's a carob tree outside. And the carob tree picked itself up and moved either 100 amas, 100 cubits, or 400 amas. There's two opinions in the Gemara as to how far it moved. Important fact how far it moved. <laughs> there's two opinions as to how far it moved, right? That tells you that's an important fact. Um, what the significance is, I don't know. And uh, the sages again said, well, we don't bring proofs from carabas trees. So he said, well, I'm right. Let the walls of the base measures prove it. And the walls started to cave in. <laughs> At which point, Rabbi? At which point, Rabbi Yeshua uh, got up and said to the walls, "Are you Torah scholars? Do you have an? Op- who are you to have an opinion on this matter?" <laughs> so the walls had a problem because they couldn't stand upright in the honor of Rabbi Elazar, but they couldn't fall over in the honor. Or sorry, they, they couldn't stand in the honor of Rabbi Yeshua, so they just kind of stayed bent. At which point, Rabbi Elazar said, "If I'm right, let heaven declare it." And then there was a voice from heaven which says, why are you arguing against Rabbi Eliezer? The halacha follows him in all, in all areas. And Rabbi Yeshua got up and says, we don't care what it says from heaven. There's a verse in the Torah which says, the Torah is not in heaven. We follow the majority. He was outvoted. That's the end of the story. Few generations later, there was a great sage named Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi um, spent some time traveling with Eliyahu Novi. And one of the things that he asked Eliyahu Novi was, what was Hashem's response to what Rabbi Yeshua said? Like, well, you know, Hashem just declared from heaven, right? And uh, Eliyahu says, Hashem laughed and um, said, my children have beaten me, my children have beaten me. <laughs> so, interpretations galore, but that's, that's okay, like, we're like, you know, I, mean, I can go on. There's lots of stories in the Gemara where like Hashem is not deferred to just because he's Hashem. Like you gave us the Torah and, and those are the rules of the game and no cheating is allowed. There's a children's picture book of that story. Yeah? In Hebrew or in English? In English. Oh, if it was in Hebrew, I'd get it for my kids. I'll get it for my daughter. She speaks, she reads English. Okay. So, Going back to the story. So they just like, how are we going to resolve this dispute? So the, there was an agreement that was made to defer to the opinion of Rabbah. Why? Because Rabbah was above all an expert in the laws of Tsaras and the impurity regarding tents. And since he was unique in his expertise in these laws, they figured we'll have him resolve the dispute. There's a tiny problem. He's not here. We need to bring him. We need it. We need. We, they, they sent a messenger down to go invite him to the heavenly yeshiva. So they sent the messenger. The problem is the messenger can't exactly bring him because he's studying Torah, right? You know that that messenger is known as the angel of death. Um, so there's this confluence of, of of him being on the run from from the government. 
No, you'll sometimes see if you read the if you read the announcements of people of people who've passed away, like big Rosh yeshivas, they'll say they have been summoned to the heavenly yeshiva. That's how the like, oh, really? spe- that's yeah, that's an actual expression. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a lot of Hasidus. I'm not, I, there's a lot of Hasidus on this story. I, I just want to tell you the, the story, just in its most simple, straightforward way, so you understand. So what what the angel of death does is he has the trees. Um, rattle, so it looks like the, so it sounds like the cavalry is caught up with, with Rabbah, and in that moment, Rabbah's concerned that he's going to be captured and tortured. And so he would prefer to die than be captured and tortured, and that's what allows the angel of death to take him. And he dies with the word on his lips, Tahar, pure, which is his ruling regarding this dispute. So the Gemara concludes that Rabbah's view is that Tahar, and that such a person is pure. Ironically and strangely, the Rambam in his halachic ruling rules impure. <laughs> so go figure how he figured that, got that out of the Talmudic text, but that's for another time. Okay, so that just gives you a sense how great this Rabbah was. And Rabbah thought that he was a Bainani. He used himself as an example of a Bainani. Now, how could he possibly use himself as an example of a Bainani, right? I mean, you can be humble, but being humble is not the same thing as being stupid. Right? What's the difference between being humble and being stupid? Being stupid is ignoring facts. Very good. Being humble is being modest about the facts. Yeah, but nah, being modest about the facts is not really being humble. Lying if he was just being humble. Yeah, but what does it mean to be humble? Like, what is it? Like, like it's being matter of fact without the facts. What? No, no. There is, there's, something, there's something else. There's something actually very profound about being humble. You're not thinking so much of yourself. You're staying with minimum possible evaluation of yourself. Okay, let, let, the word minimum is a little bit... I want to alter the word minimum. You don't assume that you're an exception. You don't see yourself as, as, as outside the norm. Mm-hmm. Words, most of us have a little spotlight in our mind mm-hmm. aimed at who? Ourselves. A humble person doesn't have that spotlight, right? So if a humble person is in a room where they're clearly the strongest or most beautiful or richest or smartest person in the room, they're aware of that. They just don't think it makes them any more special. It's factually the case that I am this. And I'm like, okay, but that's just the way it is. But when they're in a room where it's not blatantly obvious that they are the strongest, smartest, most beautiful, most talented person in the room, they naturally assume that they're not. Not because they're ignoring the fact, but because... It's, it's not obvious that they are. They would have to do a lot of, of focusing on themselves to make that argument convincing themselves and because the spotlight isn't on them in their own mind, they just don't. Right? And, and by the way, the same thing is, is, is on the reverse. Like a humble person also doesn't assume that they're the worst person. <laughs> it works the same way. Like, sometimes I speak to a Bachar and, like, ask me a question, and he's like, he's like, you know, I have this serious problem. as if, like, I'm, like, the worst sinner, and I have this, these biggest battles with the answer. I was like, you're not that special. Like, like you're, you're more like everybody else, okay? Like, <laughs> right. So a humble person just doesn't, 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 doesn't have that predisposition to thinking so much about themselves. Right? Oh, don't, don't be so humble, you're not that important. 
It goes back to our sitting yesterday at the Balgaiba Panimi. They're very humble because inside they feel they're very important. And in order for me to like live up to what I have to be a very humble person and like, yeah, yeah. But a truly humble person, a, 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 you know, like they're, 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 if you ever speak, like, I'll give you an example. So this is a bit cliche, but it's also true. Um, so I'm just going to mention my grandfather. Okay. Now I think of my grandfather as a hero. He was a World War II veteran. He volunteered, he fought, he got injured. So as far as I'm concerned, he's a hero. In his mind, is he a hero? Or was he a hero? No. In fact, it wasn't until he had grandchildren and the grandchildren getting older, he even wrote and talked and eventually wrote them memoirs about what he did. And even that, it's like very like kind of just matter of fact, like this happened, this, and it was like, you know. He writes about what he felt, but it wasn't like, you don't, he's, there's nothing in the memoir that comes off as he's in any way remotely impressed with himself whatsoever. Why? Because everyone around him was doing things Yeah, it's not special. Like, like, you know, we all, we all were afraid. We all, we all, you know, ran to help the person who got hit. We all realized we could get, like, like it's just, that's, it, is, it was what it was. Right? You know, uh, so when a person is humble, unless what makes them unique is blatant, they don't see it, not because they're denying the facts, because you don't see things you're not looking for if they're subtle. The difference between a tzaddik and a bainani who's dav- who constantly davens is like a deep metaphysical distinction, which probably has ramifications, but it's not something that is blatant in the person's experience. What is a tzaddik thinking about all day? What is a tzaddik, does a tzaddik ever experience ungodly desires? What does a bain who's davening all the time think about? Does the bain who davens all the time experience animal soul's desires? So to really realize, okay, but it's different because by the tzaddik, the animal soul has actually undergone some subjugation, right? Due to an experience of closeness with Hashem, which has caused it to truly submit to the animal soul, to, to the godly soul. Whereas with the, with the bain who's davening, it's because of the intense thing he's experiencing at the moment. And if he would stop contemplating, like, yes, that's like an interesting thing to like, you know, stand and analyze from the outside. But if you're living your life and you're not preoccupied with yourself as the most interesting thing, you would never notice that distinction. And so... How, how would you notice the distinction? Though, it's a good question how you would notice the distinction. It's not obvious how you would notice the distinction. Um, it, it could be that the nature of the way you're experiencing closeness with Hashem would be different. But that would also be very subtle and hard to pick up on. Like you'd have to have yeah, like maybe if you'd experience one level of connection to Hashem, like a tzaddik, and then you lost it, like some tzaddikim gained and lost it. But even then, you'd have to be, like, like even, you'd have to be spending a lot of time reflecting on your experiences. And even that, like, why would he be doing that? Like, what's the point of reflecting on the quality of your experience? That's a very indulgent kind of thing to do. Right. So obviously someone who feels temptation, like the Bainini who davens after he's davened, and certainly a person who feels conflicted, like the Bani who hasn't davened, are aware that they're not a tzaddik, right? And the Bani who davens, when he's davening, he knows he's not a tzaddik because he knows what's coming afterwards, right? He's not a fool. He's, 
you know, he, he remembers yesterday and last week and last month. He knows that, you know, once the davening is over, what he's going to experience, right? He's not, he's not deluding himself. If he's going to be honest with himself, right? But the Baini who constantly davens, it, 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 there's no way for them to tell that they're not a tzaddik. And conversely, there's no real way for the tzaddik to tell that they're not that Bainani. Because there's nothing that stands out in their experience. Okay, well, if there's nothing that stands out in your experience and you're humble because both the Baini who davens all day long and a tzaddik are going to be humble people, right? They're, they're obsessed with Hashem. They're not obsessed with themselves. They're, not, they're just going to assume that they're more like the norm. And what's the norm? Tzaddik or not tzaddik? So therefore, Rabbah, who was a tzaddik, assumed. assumed, quite reasonably, that he's a manani. Are we saying that learning all day and talking all day is the same? Well, that's what I want to actually get at. Because there, there's, he's, there's a little bit of a bait and switch, right? He started off, a person's like learning all day, right? Because they want to connect to Hashem. And then he, in explaining that, he gives an example of the Bainani during the time of davening, right? And then he says, Rabbah was like, it was like he was davening all day long. Like, so like, but davening and learning are not the same mental state. And for that, we have to actually go back and do that part that I, that I skipped. This idea of the, 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 the godly soul's strength and ascendancy of the animal soul from the gevuras, which are Bina through the pond of the greatness of Hashem, the intense flaming love of Hashem. We have to really understand what that is. Because most people are not really capable of doing that and learning Torah. Forget doing that and going to work and having a job and playing with their kids and changing diapers. They can't do that while learning Torah. Because learning Torah takes so much time? No, because, because it's about the mental state. Right, so to do this, to do this we, have to, we have to just start with like a more of a... a, a, a a basic idea, um, and we'll see how far we get. Okay. Um, actually, before I just want to make sure that the general overview, general thing is clear, and then we're going to get into. Okay. So again, we have somebody who the animal soul has actually been truly affected by the godly soul. Either it's been subjugated to more or less degree, or transformed. And, we, and that has to do because of the, the kind of love that person is experiencing produces a kind of hate that really ha- takes a toll on the animal soul, truly. That we learned in chapter 10. Then we have a person whose animal soul is, has power. More power, less power, more overt power, more subtle power over how they live their life. And that person is a Russia. That we learned about in chapter 11. Then we learned about a Bainini, where the animal soul has not in any way been really affected by the godly soul. But the godly soul has able to take control over the person's life in terms of how they're going to live their life, the choices they're going to make, what they're going to say, what they're going to do, what they're going to think about. And in chapter 12, we have the basic kind of model where the Bainini experiences the state of just only the godly soul really is in charge and almost feels like the godly soul is sovereign. But that doesn't last. It's only during the state of, of contemplation. And afterwards, what they're left with is an imprint in their mind and their heart and because the nature of a person is the mind rules the heart, they're able to keep the ungodly emotions in check in a way that it's almost taken for granted. It requires conscientiousness, but they're not really conflicted. And then we learn, even a person who's really conflicted, as long as they maintain a balance of power between the Yitzhahari, Yitzhahari, between the godless soul and the animal soul, Hashem will come and provide that clarity to be like the third judge who reconciles that the this based in all three judges are in favor of the majority ruling. Right? 
And now we're learning the kind of the opposite extreme, even a person who never experiences their animal soul because it's dormant, it's asleep, it's, 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 it's retreated to wait for an opportunity to fight again. Like a Bainini who when they're davening, a, per- a person could be in that state all their life. Like Rabbah, so much so that they would, or like Rabbah assumed he was, so much so that a person could legitimately, if they were arrogant, think they were a tzaddik, or if they're humble and they were a tzaddik, think this, they were this kind of Bainini. But that's actually just because of the dominance of the intensity of the godly soul causing the animal soul to go dormant until the opportunity is right to come back. But there's no real subjugation taking place. So basically, if anyone says they're exotic, you know they're really a Russia? Um, no, 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 no. There are ways you can know you're a tzaddik, but not through, you don't know you're a tzaddik through examining your own experience of, of there's an actually interesting, it says, the Altar says, the, the, the Altar brings the Gemara that says, if the whole world tells you you're a tzaddik, you should assume that you're like a Russia. Right, which he says you assume like you're like a Bainini. And so there's this, there's, uh, uh, oh, uh, I don't remember if this is from Chassidim or from the Rebbeim. I think it's from Chassidim that the idea is if the whole world tells you, the world meaning where your knowledge of your state is being inferred from an external thing. So I don't sin, so I must be a tzaddik. No. I don't feel a desire to sin, so I must be a tzaddik. Even that, not necessarily. Are there other things that might make you aware that you're a tzaddik? Yeah, but again, why would you be spending your time examining the state of... There was a very famous rabbi named Rabbi Kiva Eger. Rabbi Kiva Eger lived um, the same, same time as the Alter of the Mitla of the founder. He was not a chassid, but he was not an opponent of chassidim. He was, he was a rabbi in the town of the city of Posen. Posen, which I believe at that time was part of... Uh, was, was, it was under German rule, some kind or another. Um... He, so the, the Mittler Rebbe, the Alter son, met him. There's a very long letter where he describes it. He describes the Jewish community in Posen. He's very not impressed with the state of the, how the women are dressing immodest and, the, and, and just like, he's, like, there was very, like, there was a lot of, you know, it was, it was a lot of influences from Western Europe. And it's the late 17, early 1800s. It was actually the early 1800s. The, the Alter Rebbe No, the Mittler Rebbe, mm-hmm. his son. But he was very impressed with Rebbe Kiv Eger himself. And he says about Rabbi Kiv Eger that he has Ava Batanugim, a love of delight, which is the level of love that a tzaddik gomer, complete tzaddik experiences, but he's unaware of it. He's so invested in his Talmudic studies, he's completely unaware of how much, and the, not just how much, but the quality of his love of Hashem. He's experiencing this kind of love of being in Hashem's presence at all moments, to the point that his animal soul has been transformed, and he's completely unaware of it because he's trying to figure out Gemara. So it, it's not like it's not the case that like, exp- like and think about it in our own lives, right? Like think about how much self introspection is needed to really figure out your emotional state, what's really going on inside, and that's just on the surface level to really know what's going on in the deepest levels. So, like, and why would you do that? Like, it's kind of indulgent. You need a good reason to be doing that. Um, famously, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said that he didn't know if he was going to be going to heaven or the other place. Rabbi Yochanan Zaka was one of the greatest sages who ever lived. He, he led the Jewish people through the destruction of the Second Temple. He, he was a master of, as the Gemara says, the great things and the small things. The small things are the Talmudic disputes. And the great things are the secrets of Kabbalah. 
And he, he just, but at the end of his life, he says, I'm not sure which direction I'm going. And one of the explanations is that he was so devoted to what does Hashem want from me now that he never really thought to ask, reflect on where is he really holding? Am I really, you know, deep down have I refined and elevated myself? He was too focused on the, the task at hand. So it's not so obvious that a person, especially a God-fearing person, who has a mission in life, who has things they need to be doing, whether it's studying Torah, communal life, helping other people, whatever it is, is going to spend the time examining the exact level of love or fear of Hashem that they've achieved, the exact level of temptation they're experiencing. It's very indulgent. Not saying there's never a place for it, but you need a good reason to do it. It's not something valuable in and of itself. But a person can definitely know they're a tzaddik through other means. What are possibly other ways a person might know that they're a tzaddik? Prophecy, right? <laughs> like tells them, like, you're the tzaddik of the generation. It's your job. To, like, I mean, guess then they know that, right? Like, that could be a way you could know it, right? How about someone else who's known to be a tzaddik tells them? Right? There are kind of other things, but this examining yourself, right? Going from kind of this external thing. I'm, I'm going to take a look at myself, you know, like, like a scientist examines a specimen and trying to figure out if I'm a tzaddik or not. You're not going to ever be able to really figure out that you're a tzaddik because one of the two, either you really are on the upper levels of devotion to Hashem, in which case you're too humble to assume that you're a tzaddik and the most you could see yourself is that you're a baby who constantly daffins. Or you're arrogant enough to think that you're a tzaddik, in which case you're obviously not. Could you also have that... Confusion between the Russia who like barely ever sins. Yeah, me. right. You could, you could definitely have that as well, right? Because you could have the Russia who's constantly overcoming temptation and is not really being, not really aware that of how much they're using ulterior motives to kind of bolster it. And it's not really that the godly soul has the animal soul contained. And that if the temptation would be a little bit stronger, if the, if the ability to, to justify the sin would be a little bit greater then the way they're approaching things wouldn't really stand up to that level of scrutiny. Yeah. Right. In other words, while, in other words, while the borders between Sadiq, Benin, and Russia are conceptually very, very clear, experientially, they're very messy. It's true, once you're sinning, you know that you're clearly not a Benin, right? But if you haven't yet sinned, Right? If, you've, if you held yourself back at the last minute for ulterior motives, then you know that, okay, so you're not a Bainani, right? But what if you held yourself back, but it doesn't feel like it's for ulterior motives, but it really was, right? Or what if conversely it wasn't for ulterior motives, but your animal soul wants to convince you that it was, to undermine, right? And again, that's one of the reasons, like, it's really not so helpful to, like, it's not like an achievement thing, like, oh, I've achieved Bainani, I've achieved, like, it's, it's, it's not... If you understand it much more as modes of living, and that's what we're going to see in chapter 14, we're going to say, like, if you approach life like a Benini, good. Like, you know, it's not like, it's, it's not like you get a special, like, certificate for having achieved it or something. Right. Um, okay, so now let's go back to this idea of what, what's going on in the state of, in, in the state of prayer. If, question, if a person is not sinning for other reasons, not, the, not these three, yeah. then that's the means they're not a baby. Correct. There's something that the Rebbe calls a Russia Bekayach, a potential Russia. They haven't sinned because the particular 
circumstance has not arisen, right? Mm-hmm. But the way I like to use it is like, from the time you turned bas mitzvah until the first devere you did, were you a bainani? No, you just, you know, like, however long that lasted, 10, 15, 20 minutes, doesn't make you a bainani. It just means that, like, you haven't gotten around to sinning yet because the temptation wasn't strong enough. Because, um, again, it finally has to do with that. Is sinning something that is a viable option to you in the way you're approaching your life? That has to do with strengthening the godly soul, at least to the point of parity with the animal soul. At least. Right? That's the bare minimum. That was the beginning that we learned in the beginning of chapter 13. Okay. Um, yeah, so you can have a person who's like totally, you know, they don't experience anything negative in them whatsoever. And yet, they're supposed to assume that the only reason that's the case is because they're somehow in a state of constant prayer. And if that would cease, all of the horrible, evil things of the animal soul, of even the worst sinners, is really there. It just has not been given the opportunity to express itself. And it's lying dormant. So should you ever truly trust yourself? Okay. Now, um, so we have only a few minutes left, but we'll, we'll get started here. Okay, there's something called Gvura. And that's important to myself. So Gvura is one of the uh, spheres, right? Um, but Gvura is a trait in the person. So I want to talk a little bit about Gvura. We'll start and then we'll move on, you know, next week. And we'll talk more about it. How do you measure strength? What kind of strength? Any strength. By what the person can do. Okay, right. You measure strength by creating resistance. resistance and, right? So physical, you measure physical strength by having more resistance, right? Strength is the overcoming of resistance. Make sense? Uh, the mission tells us, Ezehu Gibor, who is a truly strong person? One who overcomes his inclination, right? That real strength is the ability to overcome internal resistance. Okay, fine. Good. Makes sense? <coughs> how do you overcome resistance? Like, how does that, like, okay, strength is, the measurement of strength is the overcoming of resistance, right? So the more resistance you can overcome, the stronger you are. Okay, fine. But then what is strength itself? Like, what... But that's not overcoming resistance. I mean, let me explain to you what I mean, okay? The Gemara, the Gemara gives, the Gemara says something very interesting, which is an important life lesson. The Gemara says that someone who has a lot of chutzpah mm-hmm. is a king without a crown. Now, what does that mean, is a king without a crown? Do you think he's a king? No, no. A king is somebody who people, Listen. very good. But what gives him the authority, the legitimacy? Nothing. He has no legitimacy. He has no authority. The sheer audacity of the person gets people to. But think about that. Isn't that true? Like someone who walks into the room, exuding confidence with no basis whatsoever, people are like, well, he really knows what he's talking about. Right? Right? So, but that's not overcoming resistance, is it? 
That's exuding a level of superiority, which is totally has no basis in it whatsoever, right? What's chutzpah? Chutzpah is just exuding the sense that you're entitled, you belong, you know, even though you may not in fact at all, right? Every good con artist needs to have a lot of chutzpah, right? And when you do that, people, they go along with you. Even though there's no legitimate, it's not like you're, you're not coming off with expertise, right? No one accepted, no one, no one appointed you with authority. No one died and made you king, right? No one crowned you king. Okay, but so you definitely have power and influence. But that's not really strength. You understand what I'm saying? That's not overcoming resistance. There's, what you're doing is creating a situation where there is no resistance. Mm-hmm. So let's think of a situation where there is resistance. How do you overcome resistance? Any kind of resistance. Physical resistance, resistance from other people, resistance from yourself. Like how, what? Or not giving up. With force? With a Well, I'm not asking how you build, how you get to that place. Like, Just staying in, not giving up. That's endurance. It's different, right? That's, that, that's a different, that, that's an important thing, but that's not the same thing. You, you know the whole grandmother you know, lifting the car thing? Right? That's an example of real strength. Right? Gvura. So tapping into... I'm tapping into Hashem. But now you're getting mystical. Okay, tapping into... Tapping into, without getting religious and spiritual, tapping into what? Like conviction. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be a mental conviction. It could be... Uh, hard to put into words. Like you have... There's some reservoir of stuff that you don't normally access and you're able to, right? In other words, there, there's the, 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 the overcoming of resistance is by like digging deeper and bringing out something that is more intense. It's not like pulling something off the shelf. That's right. <coughs> Think about, has anyone here tried to lift something very heavy? You have to actually, it, you know, you can like, like, draw something out of yourself that you don't normally access, right? There's many kinds of strength, but they all have this in the, is that you're, the, the, there's, there's a real resistance and the way you overcome it is you kind of, you go deeper. If you want to even think about physically for a second, right? Like jumping. If you want to jump really far, what do you do? Bend your knees. You, you bend your knees, Right? Go down and you jump up, right? Or you, or you move back and then you run forward, right? There's this go deeper and then burst forth. Mm-hmm. That's strength, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I'm gonna, I, want, I want you to just take that mental image and ask yourself, romantic love, is that kavura? I want you to think about it. Now I want you to think about it. Because one of the things is to get, to get a sense of something, you need, to, you need to really play with it in your mind. Does it have to do with like overcoming? Well, first off, is there an overcoming of resistance in romantic love? Yeah. What? What? There's internal resistance of vulnerability, right? There's the other person's defensiveness. Not like an unhealthy defensiveness, it's just the sense that they're another person with their own private life, right? So there's, in other words, there's the, the otherness of the other that you really have to overcome. And how's that overcome? 
Right. You don't, you don't, you don't do it by like making superficial things in common. Like there's something deeper inside that bubbles out, right? Bubbles over, right? There's, Okay. That whole dynamic of there's resistance, there's something deep inside, you burst forth, that is the dynamic called Gevura. Okay. It has a lot of manifestation, a lot of aspects to it. What is it, and I'll just stop here, what is it that gets the animal soul to say, okay, 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 let me know when you're done. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a nap. I'm out of here. I'll be back when you're finished. Not subjugated, I'm not subduing, but I'm, I'm out. When there's that gvura, when a person is, exp- when the godly soul's gvura is manifest, that intensity, just before we get into love and contemplation and all that, that intensity of towards Hashem, right? That there's Hashem, there's this resistance, there's this gap, there's this whatever between you and Hashem, which doesn't, by the way, have to be the gap of, of sin. It just be the gap that you're finite and he's infinite, right? That, that, and you're, you're trying to get past that. You're trying to, right? And the way you get past that is by drawing out something deeper in yourself. When that is what the person is experiencing relative to Hashem, what does the animal soul do? Goes to sleep. Goes to sleep. It's like, I, I, I this is pointless. Like, like, there's nothing for me. Like, what am I going to do? Tempt them with cheesecake? Like, like this is like not going to happen, right? Now, in a tzaddik, the animal soul actually becomes subjugated by that. In a non-tzaddik, uh, he just like, you know, goes to his corner and like turns on his television and like waits till it's over. Which now, let's just think about this for a second. If you're not experiencing this kind of gavura relative to Hashem, is your animal soul truly dormant? No. Can you explain the Gavura relative to Hashem over time? Think about Gavura in general. What does Gavura in general look like? What are the elements of Gavura? There's some resistance. You're trying to overcome that resistance. How do you overcome that resistance? By drawing something deeper out of yourself that bursts forth. Okay. So there's you, there's Hashem, there's a gap between you. And how do you... In your, and, and there's the, the energy, the drive to bridge that gap is coming from deep within yourself and bursting forth. That's the kind of feeling towards Hashem the person is having that we're talking about. And when a person is feeling that, what is their animal soul doing? It goes to sleep. Yeah, like it has no, like it, 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 like, there's no place for the animal soul in that experience. So it's, it might be easy to confuse that Emotion and it is emotional. No, but I mean like inspiration. Oh yeah, yeah, but but that but but the but the issue here is is that it's is that it's not the experience of gavura. It's that and that's what we're going to talk about next week. It's that this experience of gavura is coming from the godly soul, and the root of gavura in the godly soul is in its bina, which we have to talk about. What bina is right. No, you can experience gavura all the time. Experiencing gavura is not hard, but most of the gavura we experience is the gavura of the animal soul. Right. That's- and I can even channel that towards religious observance. Yeah. Right? Right, that's like what Camp Color War is all about, right? Okay, um, okay. so just tying it back, the Bain and you is constantly davening, right? It doesn't mean he's sitting with a sitter all day long. What does it mean? What, 
how is he experiencing his, what is he experiencing relative to Hashem? He's experiencing this gavura. Right? Think of the level of maturity a person would have to have to be experiencing that and do their taxes. Well, that's, I mean, not everybody's rabbi. Because <laughs> maturity, maturity is what allows you to regulate how your emotions play out in your life. So what about confusing the gavora of the animal soul? Like, we'll talk about that next time. I want, I want, I want to leave that for, for... But how can you be in a state of the godly soul and its gavora and everything when you're focused on something... Else in the world, you can't have your head in two places completely. We're going to talk about that also. That's what, right? Not in other words, most people are not really cut out to be a bani that davens all day long. But at the end of the day, even the bani that's davening all day long, what's happening is that gavura is suppressing the animal soul to the point the animal soul is dormant. The animal soul is not truly affected by it. That's Alfred's point. So therefore, don't use that state as any indication about the nature of your animal soul at all. It's not. The fact the animal soul isn't present is not evidence of what's going on with the animal soul itself. It's not been subjugated. It's not been transformed. And if that gavura were to fade, you would discover that the animal soul is just as you know, ungodly, unholy, decrepit, vile, whatever else is anybody else's animal soul. And Rabbi assumed, like, I'm not so special, so, like, I'm probably true of me, too. Why wouldn't it be true of me? He was wrong, but... Okay. We'll hold it here. Tom, um, tomorrow we have questions and answers, and next week we'll, we'll talk more about the state of Gvor, Bina, right, how we, what means it's coming from the godless soul specifically. Right? Finding um, What? Finding that well, maybe finding that Gavura comes from not looking for it. Maybe if you try to find the Gavura, it doesn't work. Yeah. Have you ever tried to like make yourself feel romantic love? Yeah. Does it work so well? <laughs> no. Okay. We need an indication. No, I think that it's actually very important.